Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond at the home of The Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And I have with me a special guest from north of the border, Amanda Brisebois, who's an MD, palliative care doctor, and has had a very interesting career arc that I share and that many people who listen to the podcast, many people who've been through burnout share of an awakening as a physician to whole realms of, in this case, coaching and communication skills and ways of communicating with people that she didn't necessarily learn in medical school. So Dr. Brisebois, welcome to the the podcast. And um, what I'd like to just begin with is tell us a little bit about your early career, uh, your training, your early practice, and about the point in time when you came to that realization that you needed more or something different than what you were getting so far. It's a long story. And that's why it says Dr. B here as well, because no one can pronounce my name, <laughs> including my <laughs> patients. So that's very normal. Don't feel, don't feel bad. My journey is interesting. And like a lot of us, I got into medicine because I thought it was hard. I loved people. I didn't know any doctors. I have no doctors in my family. And so I got in in a very naive state. I thought that I would take care of patients when I was done, and that's all my career would be. And that is definitely not the case and very far from it. So I'm an internist, and I started in internal medicine. And I got in, and I just worked so hard all day, all night, seeing patients, but I ended up having some kids still all day, all night seeing patients. I have multiple sclerosis. I didn't pay any attention to that. I just kept working, not sleeping for weeks on end. And I started realizing that I was punishing myself and I was hating my job. And I love medicine. So I thought, why why am I hating my job? So I started trying to create change in our environments and getting people to do call overnight, but I didn't know what I was doing. So it didn't work. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do something else. I'll change paths. I'll be able to do a different specialty that's not as hard. I'll be able to see more people. So after 14 years in practice, I went back and did a year of training as a resident, which is an interesting story in palliative medicine, because I thought I'd be able to focus on patients more. And because I thought I was missing patients' stories, I did wellness coaching certification. And that's what really got me into the coaching piece. I started to realize how to ask proper questions Mm -hmm. and and how to really get to know people. And all of a sudden that extended into my my physician colleagues. And wow, what am I missing? And I was told basically I wasn't doing enough as I was doing all this. So the leaders in the university world said, well, you've won all these teaching awards. That's not enough. You're doing clinical work. That's not enough. You have to do more. And I thought they never told me that in medical school. So all of a sudden I started trying to do more and I got into leadership. And what I didn't realize in leadership is that it's all about human behavior, which is really what I love. And I found that that's really the piece that I love. I love this kind of thing, talking to people one-on-one, 
So I got into leadership and I was the medical director of a big hospital in Edmonton, Alberta, where I'm from during the pandemic. And boy, did we see a lot of stress as everyone did going through the pandemic and conflict and difficulties. And I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never been taught in conflict, but trying to do leadership courses and conflict courses. So I went back to learn how to be a mediator. And I just have my exam left to do on that. But it has opened my eyes and the leadership training and how we are not taught to do a lot of these things that are being placed upon us. And so I started changing my career and stepped out of that medical director role. I still do some high-level leadership, but the thing that I'm enjoying the most is the talking to my colleagues managing conflict. And we've, we've worked through that, and I have a strategy to do that with people, but it's really brought me back to how we can enjoy our jobs. So if I... If I've got the timeline right, it's it's back to palliative medicine. Um, and when you begin to see things maybe perhaps slow down and make more connections with your patients, it's back to coaching. And and coaching, I, I've been a certified coach since 2000. Coaching is a completely different way to relate to your patients and your clients that holds the client as capable and us as helping them get clear on what they really want and help them move in that direction, which is very different than diagnose and treat and position yourself as the expert who has the answers in these relationships. And then leadership and now mediation, conflict, mediation, and all that kind of stuff. It's more and more into communication. And um, we were talking before we started recording here that Going through residency and functioning as a clinician at the apex of the care team where you diagnose, give orders, and you expect people to either comply or obey doesn't demand a particularly sophisticated communication or emotional intelligence skill set. <laughs> you can be a pretty blunt instrument, and everybody knows a surgeon or two where things are very procedurally oriented, I, you know, bone broke, me fix. Everybody knows a surgeon or two that's particularly blunt. But as you went through the awakening of overstress, retrain, realize you really like to be with people, you really like to dive into the conversations, you really like to get into the middle of conflict and find the common ground. Just generally speaking, what do you think are some missing skill sets, some missing talents, some things that doctors can do that can help them be more effective communicators, both with their patients and with their teams? You know, I, I don't think it's that difficult. It really depends on our personalities, as you say. I mean, there's surgeons that are assertive. There's internists that are assertive. Oh, yeah. Medicine docs that are assertive. But there's also surgeons that really want to spend that time, too. And then you're right. How do you fit in? How do you tell your team and, and talk to your team about it? So I'm really trying to promote, as coaches do, talking in the moment to each other. And it's very uncomfortable these days, uh, you know, having different opinions. And so what I'm telling people is it doesn't really matter what your personality is like or whether you're an assertive person or whether you're a very collaborative person. But acknowledging that what someone says to you might not resonate with you in the moment. Because I see a lot of complaints come from those sort of one-on-one -on -one interactions that one person has no idea even what they did, but no one stopped them in the moment. Maybe it was an assertive tone and that person walked away and the other person felt that it was something against them. So I'm trying to really help people 
create environments of safety, as we say, where you can tell me you hate what I'm wearing. I've had actually this happen at work. And I can just say, well, my classic line is, ouch. But what you can say is, what happened? What just happened? And I say that and people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, did I, I think I heard you ask me what the heck was I wearing? And I'm, I'm not sure how to take that. And people will actually respond to that really well, these sort of comments in the moment. And then if they don't, and they do end up sort of being an assertive personality or something that's causing difficulty on a team, that person will have a moment to reflect about that actually someone in the moment stopped them and they'll know what the situation was. Because what often happens is they don't remember at all what happened. So they can't reflect on it and they can't get better. And you're talking about communication. They can't grow. Well, and if I can slow down what you did so quickly and skillfully there, it went something like this. One, ouch. Two, what just happened? The other person says, what do you mean? You restate what they said and say, I'm not sure how to feel about that. And then probably hold your silence. (laughs) Yeah. That's a brilliant script. I like it a lot. It's exactly it. I'm starting a project called the Be Better Project. And that's exactly what it is. It's you have to take this moment to breathe. And then you have to also think that it's believe a positive intent. And I think we miss this part that that person may be seeming aggressive or whatever is happening, but they may not be. You know, there may be a positive intent. They may just be struggling themselves. We never know. And so just to take that second to think about that and then to really, what are you experiencing? What are they experiencing? And is there time for it at the moment? Is now a good time. Sometimes it's an urgency. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's an urgency and and someone's dying and you're not going to sit there and ask them how, how they're feeling or that you didn't appreciate the comment. But you can make one word and say, oh, I'm not sure what to make of that. Can we talk about it later? I'm going to help you right now. Uh, it doesn't take very long, but yeah. Okay, so hang on a second. There it went again. It's like, I know. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how to, what to think about that. I'm going to take care of you now. Can we talk about it later? Okay, yeah. but what you're doing is, um, what you're doing is something that I have talked to a lot of people about difficult conversations, and in hindsight, what happens is um, somebody was ignored or uh, marginalized or bullied. And in the moment, they didn't say anything. And and what ends up happening is afterwards, they said their their feeling is that they should have spoken up in the moment, but they were knocked back and potentially knocked out by what happened. You're saying, ouch is good enough. Ouch in a breath can center you in a way that you can say something respectful to make sure that you do talk about what just happened at some point, right? Yeah. And each person has something different. You know, ouch might be mine. But uh, another person was telling me they just sort of rubbed their fingers together to take that little minute. But it's not easy. And I really like to reiterate that because the reason I've focused on this so much is I've been through things in my career where I said nothing. And many times, like as an experienced leader, and I've gotten to the point where I think, you know, that impacted me. And I still am irritated with myself. That I didn't. So we just have to be kind to ourselves when we can't in the moment or there's something stopping us. But the next time, because there are always going to be differences, the next time I can think, well, what what might work next time, even if I just stall for a minute 
so that I can reflect that it's impacting me and let them know, or maybe I'll talk to somebody after next time. Like maybe I'll make it the next hour I find someone I can talk to and maybe I'll make that step. It doesn't have to be immediately the step where you say something in the moment. It's taken me a lot of years, a lot of training and personal reflection to get to that point where I feel comfortable with it, but I haven't been I haven't done that my whole life. Right. Well, my wife sometimes asks me the question, have you always been like this? And I say, I'm pretty sure the answer is no. (laughs) So so the other thing that I'm noticing is that the two examples that you've given right now has been where somebody's actually speaking to you and it stings a little bit and you're not sure what to do about it. Um, Another thing that, that I think is a very important skill as a leader is to witness somebody speaking to someone else you're responsible for the context in which the team works. Somebody says something to someone else and it's still an ouch. It just wasn't directed at you. And then you are the person who in an ideal world would be speaking up on behalf of that person too. So they wouldn't get marginalized. Yeah. And I, I was in Japan and I couldn't speak Japanese and I loved it because whenever they were trying to communicate to you that you should not do something, they just put a big X in front of their bodies with their arms and they made a big loud, yeah, exactly. They made a big loud noise and I was like, whoa, I shouldn't be going there. And they were very, very effective. And so sometimes what I'll do in team is I'll just, my little sing, signal is the timeout. Like I just go timeout, you know, with a little T. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people will look at me and they're going, what? And I remember this one time in a team meeting that there was one man in the room and all the women were joking about how bad men were at something. I don't remember what it was, but I did that. I was like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) And they're like, what? I said, "Uh, you know, this this can be really impactful when you're just the single man in the room. And they all just sort of looked at me and I'm like, I'm just saying. And I sort of say it like that, but honestly, if one person just says something there, the guy said to me after he said, thanks, because I'm not like that, like whatever they were saying, you know, Right. (laughs) but he didn't feel that he was able to speak up and we can't, it's hard. It's very hard to do that. But if you can come up with something, I always say, and this is what mediators do, and it takes a lot of work. They teach people how to use neutral language so that you're not saying they did something wrong by talking about whatever men they felt was doing poorly and he, and he's not doing anything wrong but what can we do better as a team instead of pointing a finger and that those that neutral language does take some work but boy does it ever work and the other thing i'll say and, and again one a lot of the work that i do as a coach is helping physicians interact with their leaders in order to have a relationship that supports them in moving more towards their ideal practice. Timeout always works. Everybody knows what timeout is. You can say timeout with this big T in your hands and everybody will pause and look at you. And then you have the audience's attention. The other yeah. thing that we talk about is when you notice big emotions, and this is a practice, You and, and what practice makes better. So the more you practice it, the better you're going to get. But if you can notice what you're feeling in a conversation, especially with when it's big feelings, and to name the feeling without becoming it. So um, it could go something like this. Wow. Wow, Mandy. When you said that, I noticed a lot of anger came up for me. 
Did you notice that too, or is it just me? And now I'm I'm not angry as I say that. I'm just naming the emotion that I felt. And I find that that is that will draw people into conversation and it also helps you name and then calm down and not become that emotion. I'm totally with that. I love that strategy. So I use that with my patients and I always it that always makes them laugh, which is kind of strange. But if a patient's really angry for whatever reason and they're aggressive and yelling, I'll go, I sense something big. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, I'm angry. Like, what's wrong with you? I sense and something, something big. big. And I like it. And but it's amazing because everyone, especially if there's family in the room, they start laughing because it seems ridiculous. Why wouldn't I name it anger? But what? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's maybe they're sad that their partner is dying and it's not anger. So and then they'll say, yeah, I'm really angry at you. Are you stupid? And I'll say, that's it. Let's sit down and talk about it. And it just opens that window. It's not saying what I feel, just like what you're doing when you don't want to tell somebody uh, that what they did was wrong, but you want to tell them when when you said I was wearing something lo- looked ugly, I felt maybe I should have spent more time getting ready this morning, and now I feel like I don't even shouldn't even be at work. Like what uh, you know, what is that about? And it makes people just think. Well, and and um, a couple of things come to mind for me because as busy as doctors are going from patient to patient in the whirlwind of their day, how do you fit these kinds of um, open and honest and truthful and transparent communications into a super busy day when you're a half hour behind and the patients won't reschedule <laughs> like that. You know, a good thing. And I always say to people, it takes probably more of your time to let it go because then your next interaction, let's say you're in a clinic or you're a resident with a preceptor and they say something, you're not going to concentrate, you're not going to be effective getting the history, you know, whatever you have to do. Or if you're a physician that's running from one place to the other and you've had some interaction that's not ideal or you have no opportunity to speak about even one word, you go to the emergency room and then you're stressed there and it builds and builds and builds. And we only have so much capacity to take that in a day. So somebody's got to get that uh, emotion that's going to build up or whatever it is. And whether it's the people at home when you get there and finally snap or can't take it anymore, or if it's the next patient, or maybe it's your colleague you see next. And then the next interaction, you're going to actually have some big altercation that ends in a complaint or something. So, you know, it seems like a big time to take, really take seconds. I I bet you if you timed it, it wouldn't even take a minute. Well, when you get good at letting go and releasing, it takes a single breath. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You're right. It does. It's just like, that's what ouch does to me. For right. me, it just refocuses me and I, it makes me laugh a bit. And then it makes everyone else laugh. They're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah, we teach a thing called the squeegee breath where you teach up, you breathe all the way up to the top of your head and then you exhale all the way to your toes and you give it up to the squeegee that wipes you clean as you exhale and you trigger that with something you do between each patient so that you're constantly resetting and resetting and resetting. Works like magic. I like that. Yeah, the thought of being window washed. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I've got my squeegee here somewhere. Oh, there it is. You're going to wipe me off the screen. But hey, that's give the, it up to the squeegee. <laughs> that's a, you know, whatever. And I always say to people, it's your own strategy because everyone has their own thing. Some people don't, aren't really emotional people or they're not going to want to engage in that. But there has to, there's going to be something for them too that they can just take a pause 
and think about how do they want to do it, whatever it is. Maybe they love sports or something, so they're going to use a sports analogy and pretend they're their favorite sport person that just got sacked or something. I don't know. Um, whatever it takes for them to just realize, wow, like, number one, I'm not alone having differences in the workplace. It's very normal. And then number two, how am I going to just take a little bit of a breather here and decide how I'll make my day better? So I wanted to talk a little bit about how you do this in a chaotic and overwhelming and and no time environment. The second thing I'm curious about is there also has to be boundaries because there are people who are inappropriate in a healthcare setting, inappropriate, dangerous, threatening, violent. So how do you notice when something has crossed? Because I can imagine there would be some people who you're out would just make a matter (laughs) or good, you deserve it or whatever they would say in return, right? Yeah. Yeah. And one of those B's and be better part of its boundaries, because sometimes it's not safe. And so it's very important to recognize that you might not be in a safe environment. It might be a patient or it might be there's abuse. There's lots of things that go on. So really recognizing whether it's safe or not is very important. But, you know, when you're when you're in an urgent situation and I say to people to trust their instincts and you can still get out of a situation and say, I'm just what you did. I'm feeling uncomfortable and I'm worried because this isn't what I expected and I just have to take a break. And so, uh, you know, I'll even say you can think about what's happening for you. But, yeah, I need to take a break and I might need to leave, actually. Right. Step out. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a resident or someone who's worried about what that would be perceived as, you you can always say, I want to talk about this at some point. But right now I just need to to make sure that I'm safe. And so I'm going to take a break. And that word safe does make people think. Because we're learning that in society now that we want to be safe and that we want to. So that person might not realize they made you feel unsafe. Right. And and hopefully they don't because then they'll think, oh, you know, so it's the same sort of thing. Like what's happening here? I'm feeling uncomfortable and I'm worried about myself. Is it possible for me to take a break here? I need to take a break. Yep. And timeout works. Yeah, um, and the other thing that that your the, your speech patterns remind me of is the concept of a parking lot. So yes. can we can we put this in the parking lot and talk about it later? I don't want to forget it. Yes, I don't want to let it die in the parking lot. I want to make sure that we come back to it. And over the course of a day, you might have two or three things, especially if you're a student or a resident, might have two or three things that you really want to talk about and process that you didn't have time to do in the rush of the day. I love the parking lot. In fact, now that we have these little handheld devices, I have a little notes page. Right. And so, you know, just as you said, if you're a resident or you're busy at work and operating all day or something and things happen, why not just say, make a note to myself, you know, use Siri or whatever platform you use to your advantage and make a list of things that you want to follow up on. I'm very visual. So I like to write things down that helps me actually formulate in my mind how much it means to me, or, you know, is that something I want to do something about? What was it? So I like to just write it down after the fact and kind of decide what I want to do about it if I haven't done something in the moment. Yeah. If I have. 
And then I would like you to toot your horn a little bit. You were telling me about the quantity of teaching awards that you won in your first. <laughs> were those teaching awards before or after you did your coach training and your in your before. before? I won at least one to two a year for the oh, wow. first like 14, 15 years of my uh, practice. And the sad thing was I got declined promotion when I'd had all those awards. And I thought, look, I've done nothing. Right. What can you do? Right. And I was so upset because I thought, what? When I went to medical school, I thought being a great clinician and doing something really great like that was enough. And I think that helped me also want to be a leader to get into honoring each person's contribution. You know, it doesn't have to look like one particular thing and you're not contributing any less because you like teaching and not sitting on a committee. Like, how do we do that in organizations? And I think as physicians, we need to think, uh, we need to honor ourselves too and have open conversations about what we can contribute. We don't all have to go do training and mediation and equity and diversity and inclusion and whatever it is. I think if you want to do it, do it. But we don't all have to do that. Yeah. And I think you and I agree that I always divide the world into two chunks, content and context. And, and so medicine is almost always focused on content, what we do with the patients, what they tell us, what procedures we perform, all that kind of stuff. Very little attention played to the context, which is my experience of working on this team. And so uh, they are equally important. And what you're talking about is an open, inclusive, empathetic context that lets everybody contribute in the way that they contribute. And when it, when there's a kerfuffle or when somebody says, ouch, we talk about it as opposed to stuff it. And uh, in my mind, at this point in my life, of course, I didn't used to be this way when I was playing rugby actively and stuff like that. But certainly, it's a it seems to me to be a healthier way to lead a team than driving them from the top down. Yeah. And that's really what's happening uh, right now in, I think, a lot of leadership circles, but in some it's not. And so we have to know how to deal with all different types of leaders and you know, all different types of leaders have different things to contribute. But I think that really knowing each other and being open and honest and respecting each other is really important. So the more of us that do it, I think the better and the more that we can support trainees, et cetera, to know that they're valuable. Um regardless of what necessarily happens sometimes, because sometimes we don't get that feedback. So let's close up today. I want to talk about a topic that I'm sure you're going to have something to say about. The topic is vulnerability. Of course. And leadership. So here's, here's my experience. And I will say that I acknowledge I am a big, old, straight, white guy, Native American born. So I was born in America. English is my first language. So I probably feel this way more than anyone else because I don't have I don't have anything that clashes with the most privileged position in this society. But what I believe is this: if I am in a, an environment, let's say work, and I want to express myself openly, truthfully, honestly, and transparently, and as I contemplate saying what's true for me in that way, I feel vulnerable. I feel like I'm putting myself in danger. For me, that's a sign that the context, the environment, the culture of my team is not safe. And I feel that as a leader, 
My job is to create that safety for my team so that they can be open and truthful and honest and transparent and not feel vulnerable. Your thoughts? Take a big sigh because I'm a white female. And, you know, I have chronic illness. I have some invisible disability, whatever. It's not the same as being black or being indigenous or have been, having a whole population of your peers being marginalized for years and years and years. And so, you know, my strategies, I think we are in workplaces that sometimes it's very difficult to be vulnerable. Even as a white female, I've had real difficulties sometimes um, being able to be vulnerable. I really feel that the more of us that are around that are willing to talk to people and say, what was your experience like, so that they have one experience of safety, that they can start to learn that there are people out there that want to be there to allow that safety so that they feel safe at work, they feel that they can say things, no matter what your background, no matter what your culture, because some of these things too are uh, not visible. I mean, whatever your culture may be, you may not feel able to express yourself in certain ways. So I think the more of us that are actually willing to say, what is it like in your culture? I stop people in the mall from different cultures and say, how would you feel if I asked you about, uh, you know, your cultural clothing? I've done this before. And they're like, we'd love it. What do you want to know? And not everyone would say that. But being inquisitive, this whole thing we learn in coaching, that appreciative inquiry, I want to know what your experience is. And I want to know what it's like actually to be a black woman as a physician. And I'm not one, but if you tell me that in this situation, it was hard, I'll learn from it. And then I can try to do better. And then I can try to share with people. So I think we're a long ways off from really psychologically safe environments from what my colleagues are telling me when I ask these questions. But I think the more of us that are willing to admit that you know, we may not know what it's like, but we really want to help it be better for them. And then we work on it and try to show that and emulate that and give them one good experience. And then maybe they can have another good experience and, and uh, not forcing them to be the change makers, if that makes sense, because right. that's, that's a big pressure. Right. Restore faith. And, and that's what I believe is one of the reasons that there's a whole bunch of things that go together, but one of the of the things that gets in the way of a healthy healthcare workplace is size. Oh, yeah. And um, I I have found that as a captain on the rugby field that I can hold together 15 guys at once and maybe 15 more on the second team, 30 of us. But if we get bigger than that, if I'm supposed to lead and create context for a team bigger than that, it's really difficult. And that's a tiny team for a lot of healthcare organizations on hospital campuses and stuff like that. Yeah, they they say you can't lead a team like that, that you have to lead your uh, Im immediate team and then emulate with your immediate team ways that they can go to their team and then they, they those people can go to their team and then they get to the patients because yeah you just can't leave a, lead a group of 550 physicians or a thousand physicians that's it's not possible to know each other and that's what this sort of humble and authentic leadership is about is knowing each other so that you can understand where they're coming from so it has to filter down yeah so let's talk let's have some take homes right so I always say when things are stressful, circle your wagons, meaning grab the team that's closest to you. I'm an outpatient family dog. So that would be my receptionist, the person who helps me room my patients, and maybe the float nurse who answers some of the phone. Circle them up, huddle in the morning, time out. How's everybody doing? Let's take a big deep breath. 
and work as hard as you possibly can to to devulnerabilitize open, truthful, honest, and transparent communication and make everything that happens okay. If you don't have time to deal with it, put it on the parking lot and deal with it later. Does that make sense? What else would you add in? Well, I completely agree with that. I think that we're all different and we all do it in different ways. So I would say never feel pressured that you have to do something in a certain way. But if one person is willing to say something and be vulnerable and share that they're not perfect, then the next person I think will be the same. And I've had a family member, one of my sons with mental health issues, and I shared that. And all of a sudden, four people in the room shared that. Oh, my. Yeah. So I think the more things like this that happen, we'll be better off as teams, but it's hard and it's okay if you can't do it. But if you can find little pieces of it to do, then I think you'll start to realize that it can bring more joy in your career and and hopefully you'll get good feedback. And if you don't, then maybe that's not the right place you want to be in your job. Yeah. And, and then there, then there's one last thing I wanted to say, which is um, a lot of times when somebody says, you know, I was burned out and I got better. And I can see the numbers in the walls of the matrix here at work, right? And I can see where some of the stress is. And I want to play a role as a wellness leader. How do I get started? It's interesting. What I've always said is, well, it, it might be a little uncomfortable for you, but I would encourage you to tell your own story first. What do I mean? Tell your burnout story first and don't polish it. The good, the bad, the ugly. Like we say, be real if it feels vulnerable, be vulnerable in pursuit of making everybody feel less vulnerable because you told the truth and it was something that the group could tolerate. So speak your truth and uh, defend those who speak theirs, right? Yeah, because we all falter. We have to falter. We we can't be perfect and we're all going to have some really bad times. It's how you share it, how you get through it, how you make it your own and how you find your place. And just like we were talking before this, in order to move from being a frontline physician to being a conflict coach, I went through a lot, obviously. And I can at this age and stage in my career find something that I really love that doesn't cause that burnout. And there is that out there. You just have to look for it and find like-minded people. That's how I connected with you. Yep. I was looking for people that were interested in this. And then I met you and we got to talk about these things. And that can bring a lot of joy for people to reach out to people that are like-minded and thinking the same ways. Great. So my takeaways are, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time to talk about this right now, but let's make sure we process it at some point. Time out, right? Tell your story, all that good stuff. Well, this has been delightful. Dr. Breeze Bois from Alberta. Perfect. <laughs> nice. Perfect. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much for the conversation. Now, tell us how you can be reached if people who are listening would like to reach you, connect with you. I love it. It's amandabriesboismd.com. That's very hard to spell, but um, if I, I hope that you would be able to figure that out. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, I'm on Facebook and those sort of things, but it's B-R-I-S-E-B-O-I-S. And we'll have it all spelled out right in the show notes here for sure. I'll, yeah, have, I'll my, have links. My business is called Dr. Be Free, but I'm not really a formal business yet. I call it a vision, not a business, because I'm trying to just spread the word around and really help our profession as we come out of the pandemic. But I like that because uh, in order to be our true selves and be free, we have to have these kind of conversations. Right on. 
So there you go. Another episode of the Physicians on Perfect Pod, excuse me, Physicians on Purpose Podcast. Hey, nobody's perfect. Not right? perfect. Physicians <laughs> on Purpose Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Breezebaugh. Have a great rest Thank of your you. day. Thank you so much. Have a great day.